Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. If you're listening to this podcast, you must recognize the value of asking questions. At Aramco, our questions help us engineer a better future. How can today's resources fuel our shared tomorrow? How can we deliver energy to a world that can't stop? How can we deliver one of the fuels of the future? How can we sow curiosity to harvest ingenuity? To learn more about how innovation drives us forward, visit aramco.com slash powered by how. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. Today's episode is dedicated to Blake Beaver, a 22-year-old patron of this show and active member of our Facebook group who died far too young back on Valentine's Day. He'd been struggling against cancer for years, and as far as I understood it, things were not looking good. Uh, he was planning on living out the rest of his days and, and trying to enjoy them as much as possible. But then Blake contracted COVID, and ultimately he passed away due to complications from COVID and his cancer treatment. Now, I recorded this conversation with Sarah months ago. It happened to be next up in the queue. Uh, whatever anxieties Sarah or I have about our own deaths, Blake has now gone through that door before us. I'm grateful for his contributions, which were always raw, honest, and understanding. People say a lot of nice things about other people when they die, but I learned today 
that he was only 22, actually. And that kind of blows my mind because his maturity and the clarity with which he saw the world was well beyond his years. And I wonder if that's because of the amount of suffering that he had to go through as a young person. So this one's for you, Blake. And my deepest hope is that I will see you again in a world without cancer. May it be so. Now, this episode starts with a little bit of dark humor. So I'm going to leave a little longer musical break here just to get in the mood for that. All right. I'm here with Sarah Lane Ritchie, my dear friend and a regular contributor to the podcast, friend of the pod. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me, Dan. Always a pleasure. I just woke up because of it's it's like 10 a.m. here, but we take turns with Soren in the morning and it was my morning to take him. I didn't sleep enough. I went back to sleep. I had a very weird dream in which theologian Tom Ord was playing drums for multiple hard rock bands in like a festival type setting with cut off sleeves of his t-shirt and like making a lot of eye contact with the crowd. So I'm just in a weird space. <laughs> it's a weird moment to, to decide to talk about my own fear of death, but uh, we're going to do it. I feel like what, this would be one of those um, conversations better suited to a Friday evening post two to three glasses of wine. It is kind of one of those chats. That's true. Yeah. That's the way that Trip would do it over at Homebrewed Christianity. And I'm I'm forging my own path here at You Have Permission. So, Sarah, I have an idea for structure for these. So we're going to do these. We, we've, we've been teasing it since this summer. And I think it's quite, not happening quite as often as I thought maybe every other month. But we are going to do these recurring segments with you and I where we tackle two issues. And I'm going to give us hard cutoffs. So pretty much at 45 minutes, it will be like, Say what you got to say. I'll say what I got to say. And we are breaking. And then we're going to pick up on a new topic because we have learned that we can go ad nauseum ad le- at length on anything, really. In fact, last time we did this, we started out talking about our babies and ended up at the multiverse. And I think we should take that as a little bit of a lesson learned. Agreed. It's, yeah. Okay. So even though I enjoyed every part of that conversation, um, we have this running list, a document with tons of topics that you or I have thought would be good fodder for us to to chat about. And we are starting with uh, at least one of the hardest hitting. That's going to go second, though, and that's going to be basically fear of death. Fear of death, the void. We we might talk about the rapture, talk a little bit about, yeah, just anxiety around death. Uh, I'm excited about that, actually. Something that I think about a fair amount. But first, we're going to talk about This question of – there's a few ways of framing it. Enchantment, deep magic, Mm -hmm. uh, to use the C.S. Lewis term from the Chronicles of Narnia. I'm going to read this. This actually came from a patron of the show, and I I sadly did not write down their name. So if this was you, (laughs) let me know. Thank you. Great question or great prompt for us to talk about. So I'm going to just read it, and then I'll let you kick us off because I've been – Uh, talking already the whole time. So, quote, I had sort of a weird thing happen the other night. 
my kids were watching The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and it came to the part where Aslan took Edmund's place on the stone table. I don't believe it was necessary for Jesus to die for me. There's no, quote, deep magic, unquote, that demands blood, nor is there any ransom that must be paid in blood. Nevertheless, I couldn't help but wish something like that were true, and it took all my strength to keep myself from bursting into tears, end quote. What a fantastic just Mm -hmm. prompt for us here and little Mm -hmm. short story. First of all, can you just fill us in on the the background here for those who are not familiar with The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? Uh, What's the context for that? Yeah. So um, basically, the line which in the wardrobe is basically like a metaphor for Christianity. <laughs> um, it's it's yeah. very it's not it's not even like disguised very if well. The Lord, if just... Lord of the Rings is a five out of ten in its <laughs> Catholic, the Lord yeah. of the, the line which in the wardrobe is a ten out of ten for Anglican yeah. Protestantism. Yeah. Exactly. Straight up, like Jesus is Aslan and comes to die for like the you know, the characters. Um, Right. No. So there's this really dramatic scene kind of at the end of the, of the book where um, Aslan is, you know, the lion Aslan is killed on the stone table uh, in the place of Edmund, Edmund, right? Yeah. Edmund. Edmund, Yeah. um, Who's kind of, he's a little shit. Um, He's a little shit. Exactly. He's a little shit. Uh, Nobody likes that. (laughs) Just the worst kid ever. And yep. So Aslan dies for Edmund and it's a beautiful, like powerful, Seen if you have ever found anything attractive at all in evangelical Christianity, <laughs> it is like the most. Um, I would compelling. say even probably most Christians of all denominations. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so the idea in the book, he dies, and they like, what the hell? He's at least as powerful as the witch. Why wouldn't he just defeat her and her armies? Right. Why would he let himself be killed? And and the description. I would say in the film as well, the portrayal of their killing the the majestic line is really well done. And then they come back and the stone table has broken in two and right. Aslan is not there. So yep. Aslan knew yep. something, uh, yes. basically, that yes. he, he knew is- what he had to do in the, in the chess moves to make this thing work out. Right. And this is actually, I think, what, what sets this particular scene apart and is so striking for people who read it or watch the film is this talk of deep magic. There's a real yeah. there's, a, the, the, there's an explicit talk of deep magic as being like the narrative, the, the mythos, the, the, the ontological structure of reality that makes this sacrifice necessary and efficacious. So that is language, I think, that for a lot of us, like makes the gospels like make sense, right? There's sort of sort of a visceral appeal to like the language and and the evocative nature of deep magic um, that you very rarely heard here like talked about from like a pulpit, but rings yeah. true for those of us who have grown up with a um, you know a, a narrative of Christ dying for humanity. So my first thought on this, and I hope that this doesn't make us go too abstract too quick, but deep magic in some sense is is better branding. Than uh, what we yeah. would actually, what the theological claim yeah. would be, which is something more like sin demands blood. Yes. <laughs> like, uh, well, maybe it's both. Maybe it's it's sin demands blood plus mm-hmm. God is willing to give God's own blood. Yep. So, so you combine those two. That would be the theological orient formation formulation. Sorry, of the deep magic in the Narnia story. Is that how you yeah. read it? Yeah. And you know how, um, I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but I often have this experience of seeing a 
theological doctrine or norm or expression like written out in black and white on paper and being like, yeah, that kind of really does look like a dick wrote it. But if when I experience it, it's not like that. You know what I mean? You see, you kind of see kind of core biblical or theological uh, doctrines expressed in a way or written out clearly in a way that just does not resonate with your experience of them. And you kind mm-hmm. of find yourself wanting to like find language or, or argue for um, yeah. the truth, the deeper truth in it, but also having to recognize that you could just be spinning flowery, pretty narratives around something that is at core actually pretty toxic. And so, so this is, I think the heart of this dilemma that the, that the patron was writing about um, in the Facebook right. group. And I remember when I, when I saw this question, this prompt, I was like, that is such a compelling idea that they are articulating better than most would. It's this idea that you have, you have here a doctrine or you have like a, a, a key component of Christianity. So, so the atonement, basically Christ dying for humanity's sin and, and it requiring blood. You have this idea that when you write it down, it looks awful. It really does look awful. And not even just like when you write it down, like I think contemporary Christian theology has really wanted to distance itself from the, um, from, from like substitutionary atonement and, and um, for good reason, I think. And so there's one argument you could say that actually, we need to strip that doctrine of all the flowery, deep magic language that we might want to put around it um, and actually look at it in all its like toxicity. Like we actually need to strip it, strip it down right. so that we can see how toxic it actually is. We need to deconstruct it yes, in, exactly. in a Derrida sense, right? Yeah. Yes. Yes. But then there's this other sense in which we're, in which um, we're kind of being prompted to ask, yeah, but is it maybe not, what it can be and should be if we try and reduce it to this like legal language, substitutionary atonement language. Is there actually a way of thinking about it in deep magic language, which you're right, is so much better marketing that is actually more truthful than the pared down reductionistic uh, yes. version that, that, that portrays it as toxic. I've been thinking about this. Okay. Well, wow. hopefully this doesn't become too much of a rabbit trail. I was wondering if this would come up because I was thinking about it in our most recent interaction with our amongst our friends that there is a question of necessity of turning something into science, let's say, breaking it down to its constituent parts, figuring out how it works. That is one way of thinking about what science does, right? It has this thing and we actually we want to figure out how it works and then we can use that knowledge hopefully for the good. And a lot of times we need to do that. And then I think also every time we do that, something is sacrificed as we've broken the whole into its constituent parts. And maybe it's just our experience of it. So, for instance, off the top of my head, let's say I I don't want to say mushrooms because that's the wrong kind of uh, medicine. Uh, Suppose someone's found a, a leaf or the the skin of this particular frog or whatever in the Amazon and they've known that it. It cures rashes, okay, or aloe plants or something, right? There is an experience of just being like the god of the forest gave us this frog so that we could ha- – we would not itch so much. Now, that's sort of true, but it's also true that there's like a chemical compound in the frog skin that you can synthesize and now we can have cortisone cream or whatever it is, mm-hmm. right, that relieve calamine lotion. Both of those things are true, but you reduce it to calamine lotion. It does miss something. Mm -hmm. And then in one sense, it's not it's still not necessarily false that the God of the forest gave you the frog. 
but most people aren't going to experience it that way once you've turned it into science and something that we can extract out Mm -hmm. and then use for our own ends. Is this making sense? It is making sense. And the only thing I would want to change about the, about the metaphor is that we would need to make it, we would need to make that calamine lotion, as you say, like toxic, right? So we we would need to demonstrate that it was harmful in some way for people because the, the tension here is, is that, is that we, that, that we might experience a longing for this deep magic, right? The sort of whatever it is um, about evangelicalism that is so compelling, or actually not even just evangelicalism, like m- most expressions of Christianity, there, there's something about it that, that, that we long for to be true, right? There's something about this like sacrificial God that seems like it should be true. But on the other hand, when you start to really get into the details of what we're talking about here, it looks really, it can, it can feel really dangerous. So, so sometimes the atonement is actually not the, it's so, it's such a, it's a heated topic. And so sometimes if you step back, and look at a different issue, it can make more sense. A very similar thing I see where I see these dynamics at play is in um, complementarianism and like the headship model, right? So when you talk to somebody who is like not within, not familiar with Christian circle, like American Christian circles, and you talk to them about complementarianism and like this idea that the man is the head over the woman and that he is the head of the household and he is like responsible for God for all the decisions in the family. And in some, in, in particularly strong situations uh, or expressions, this can look like the husband, like, telling literally telling his wife what to do and she has to obey him and submit to him and all yeah, things submit to him yeah it's all about submission and i mean and it can get weird i mean i could <laughs> yeah it can get weird like there's a, there are a lot of very particular expressions of what the submission can look like yeah and i think we can um, fill in the details <laughs> yeah yeah and and it can i mean things can get really like complex and you talk to somebody outside of Christianity about this narrative and they're like, well, that is messed up and you need to go to counseling and you need right. to like, you just need to throw it out the window. There's no way for a woman to be um, healthy and whole within this framework. But if you ask somebody, particularly women, if yes. you ask a woman who is who subscribes to this, she will describe it as beautiful, as life-giving, as an experience of God's love for her. She will say that she's become more fully herself and submitting to her husband for her she is tapping into some sort of like marital deep magic right and that is wrapped up in her relationship with god and she will not accept your description of it as toxic as being an act like a uh, an accurate representation of her experience so it's a similar sort of thing do you see it's like it's not so it reminds me it reminds me of uh conversations around a hijab and uh muslim women now of course Mm -hmm. there are sort of like extreme Taliban flavored versions of this that are repressive basically by anyone's definition. Mm -hmm. But just the, uh, just the sort of median woman in Tehran who wears one, or even in Brooklyn who wears one. Mm -hmm. If, when you read stuff that they've written about it, their experience is not what you would might think it would be coming from the liberated West or whatever. And there's a real tension there. Couple things. One, I realized that I can search that you have permission group on, on Facebook, and Jonathan Parsons actually uh, submitted this prompt. So thank you, Jonathan, philosopher in our midst. Okay, I'm going to try something here. I don't know that you're going to go along with it, but my guess is that some people will go along with it who are listening. <laughs> okay. I wonder if, and I might even say think that. Although, as I said, I'm still waking up from my weird Tom Ord dream, but. <laughs> I think there's maybe a way to keep the magic in maybe not exactly the way that Jonathan experienced the magic, but 
the the best part of the deep magic. Okay, so if we break down the Lewis idea of the deep magic into, as I said, it is both sin demands blood, but then it's plus God is such that God will sacrifice God's own blood for that deal. Okay, if that's what the deep magic is, which I understand maybe there could be other formulations of what that deep magic consists of, but that's kind of how I'm reading it. Well, I think that I actually still believe the important part of that. So I no longer believe, and actually haven't believed since I was like maybe 18, 19, 20, that there is some sort of cosmic rule that sin demands blood. But I do believe that God is willing to spill God's own blood for mm-hmm. people. This has come up recently. It came up on, a, I can't remember now, but an episode that should be airing just a few before this, maybe even two or three before this, about these ways of thinking about the crucifixion as something that God planned from time immemorial because God knew that this was how to deal with human sin. Or you could think of it as a kind of thing that like Jesus, because of Jesus's divine nature, would not resist being crucified. Mm -hmm. And so naturally would accept crucifixion. And then the Mm -hmm. resurrection is God's stamp on that acceptance of crucifixion Mm -hmm. and sort of God saying, well, here's what I'm going to do with that Mm -hmm. is I'm going to defeat death in this way and whatever way you want to say that happened. So, in that sense, your your quote earlier about there's something about this sacrificial God that seems to us to be true. Well, I would say that's the part that seems to be true. Mm-hmm. And maybe in this instance, I can actually keep all the good stuff intact and, in fact, reframe it. Now, for some people, here's where it might not work for them. And I don't think this will be the same for you. But for some people, they would say, I, lo- I get the idea that. God was willing to suffer and that that is valuable uh, to you, Dan. But I think it's like more beautiful, more meaningful that there's been this like, you know, cosmic plan that I got to participate in from the beginning. Now, I don't personally as like a as like a thoroughly open theist kind of a guy. As soon as I heard about open theism, I was like, oh, I don't I haven't read the arguments yet, but that's probably going to be me. Um, you know, I yeah. don't think I have quite that same intuitional power of the long story, which maybe like Lewis and Tolkien fans have more of that personality wise. But I think that, look, I've still got the God's sacrificing God's self thing and I'm just getting rid of the rule. Yeah. All right. That's my move. What do you think? Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's, I think that's right. And so I think that we can apply this deep magic rubric to many issues within Christianity and then also to Christianity as a whole. So I think that what we're talking about here is that we recognize within ourselves a longing for some particular thing to be true about reality. And um, within this particular part of the Lewis narrative, it is that God would not only be sacrificial, but for some people it goes strong, goes further and, there's a, a felt a felt need or felt longing for it not only to be a God sacrificing God's self, but actually for that to be like this, this sort of like atonement blood sacrifice to be like written into the cosmic requirements that hold. So there are a few things here. So first of all, it, th- that we would have different expressions of what the deep magic would look like is worth noting. And it indicates that there's something not static about the deep magic and the deep magic is necessarily going to be relative, like what we experience oh, as deep magic. I love that. That's yeah. so good. And that's the, exactly the kind of thing that we should mention as you and I talk, because mm-hmm. kind of what binds us together besides our friendship is that 
we think about, we tend to see things pretty similarly. Mm -hmm. We find the same kind of arguments more or less compelling, but our Mm -hmm. experience of the spiritual has been really different. Yeah. And so that's a, that's a cool idea that, yeah, the deep magic might not be one thing that you can explain in one analogy that everyone will get into. And in fact, not to be pedantic here, but this is kind of my problem with C.S. Lewis reading him today. Mm -hmm. Love so much about him. But we tried to reread Mere Christianity with a small group, uh, I don't know, about seven or eight years ago. And it just didn't hit. Like, Mm -hmm. I was just like, oh, I'm not really asking these questions anymore. I don't think it's, I didn't have the language then, but I think it was the, I don't want to do meta narratives about like the one true great Mm -hmm. story of the universe that everybody realizes. Mm -hmm. Because like if I was coming from like a black church, that would just not be the story I was interested in. I'd be interested in a story of liberation and justice, right? And so that kind of thing is related here that like, oh, maybe there's not just one deep magic either. Just like there's not one big deep story that I think Tolkien and these guys sort of thought they they could do. I I don't want to. I'm not trying to impugn their character or anything. No, right. Exactly. So no, this is actually really important, though, because what we're saying here, I think, is that people have a different felt sense of where the deep magic lies. So that in itself is interesting. It means that there are reasons that we might feel something as being part of the deep magic that are not necessarily like actually written in the universe, right? Yes. So if you grew up in a particular context defined by the usual contours of evangelical Christianity, you're going to experience a particular version of the atonement as being particularly compelling and part of the deep magic. If you're growing up in India and have a Buddhist community that has a really rich like ont- ontology and a really deep sense of what it means to be connected to nature and oneself and consciousness and all these things, you might experience that as being deep magic, right? Totally. Um, so we have yeah, if, to you're, distinguish- if you're in the East, you if you're your big story might be something about how when one thing goes left, something else has to go right because yeah. of balance. That is yes. like not a deep feeling yeah. for us in the West. But when yeah. you read Eastern thinkers, they right. express that that's like such a deep part of their culture, such mm-hmm. a deep moral intuition that there needs yeah. to be balance. We're like balance that mm-hmm. send Satan into the lake of fire. Yeah. Let's yeah, yeah, exactly. shock and awe win this war in a weekend right. in Kuwait. You know what I mean? Yeah. 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 So, so, I mean, I think we have to be careful to distinguish deep magic from nostalgia and from a socially contextualized need for something to be true um, for reasons that aren't necessarily related to the reality or not on reality of the thing we're talking about. I had a conversation with Wesley Wildman about this last year, I think, at the AAR. So Wesley Wildman is this religious naturalist. I like to joke that my kind of core intellectual and spiritual self is somewhere between like a Philip Clayton and a Wesley Wildman, depending on if I'm having a good day or a bad day. On my good days, I'm uh, I'm more on the Philip Clayton side of things than on my bad days. I'm a, I'm a religious naturalist on the West. Religious Wildman naturalist is the idea that all the things that we consider spiritual can actually be described as natural or physical in some sense. Exactly. It's like you can, you can, you can identify or experience a religious or transcendent aspect of, na- of nature, but there isn't, but, but the, that experience and that reality is not coming from anything outside of nature. There isn't a personal God and a religious naturalist will often kind of 
be sort of like ground of being theists for those for listeners who are familiar with that. And they're not going to be all about a personal God, but this for me, so I had a conversation with Wesley Wildman, who's one of these religious naturalists who, who basically does not believe in any sort of personal God that most Christians would recognize, but is not willing to be reductionist and like anti-theological. He actually does like to say normative things about what we might call spirituality. And so we're having a conversation and he was like, basically saying, you know, you just need to let go of this God stuff. You know, it's basically saying it's just a hang up. Like you're just, you're just having a hard time getting over and growing up, you know, getting over your, your, your background. And I'm like, well, yeah, but, but maybe, maybe that longing for God, maybe the, the longing for the something more for a particular expression of God as love, as a personal God of love who is capable and, and, and longing to be in relationship to creatures. Like maybe there's something indicative about that longing itself. You know, it's a sort of natural theology. It's the idea that if you recognize within yourself a longing for something more then maybe there's a God who put that longing there for a reason. This also has a lot of consonance with cognitive science of religion right. and reformed epistemology, which is basically this idea that we have this sensus divinitatis in us. There's this like natural hunger for God. And you could very easily say that we were created with that hunger, right? So you could very easily say we were created with a longing for the deep magic because that's the nature of the thing as the nature of how the universe was created, that there is a deep magic and we would expect to recognize within ourselves a longing for that. Now, the problem is that we don't all have the same expression of it. And it just mm-hmm. like happens that we all have a sense of the deep magic that corresponds with our like family of origin. <laughs> well, so okay. Cool. But let me, let me actually try and problematize that for you, for what you said earlier, let's separate out nostalgia from the other aspects of the deep magic. Well, if we want to think about where does the where does nostalgia where does its power actually come from? I I'm not an expert on this, but one of my sort of gut feelings knowing a bit about attachment theory is it comes from the fact that these early years with our caregiving parents when we are in what's called a relaxed field of selection pressures, we are not required to sort of like punch our weight and be productive. We get to play, we get to explore, and we have unconditional positive regard from the one or two people in our life who basically are God to us. Mm -hmm. That is like the most secure thing we will ever experience. It is hardwired that way. Robert Bella, the sociologist, thought that the mammalian version of this pre-humans is the foundation for human religion. And for human language and culture and all of that stuff, that it comes from this relaxed field of selection pressures between mammal mothers and their offspring. Mm-hmm. Now, we might ask, what's the theological meaning of that? Well, that's the world we're born into as human beings. And so if anything at all is true as regarding God's desires for what we would be like, the kinds of creatures we would be, if God has any agency whatsoever in that then we're going to need to say that this mammalian care is at least a big part of it, whether you think that's from time immemorial or you think that God's sort of riffing in the moment with a a nature that makes some choices, whatever you want to say, it's still a big part of who we are now. And it is like the deepest, it's like, it's correlated to every kind of relationship we have as adults. It's correlated to success in our careers physical health and well-being, emotional health and well-being, 
so I don't know. Like, I, I'm not so willing to go, well, that's just what you want because of the way you happen to be born. It seems like if God exists, some part of God's plan, or at least what God's okay with, is that we would have differential versions of the same incre- most important aspect of our lives. Mm-hmm. And that nostalgia and this the, the, the felt part of this deep magic would be associated with that period of our lives. So mm-hmm. I don't I'm not willing to just say there's nothing there that mm-hmm. matters to the theological conversation. I'm not sure exactly what to do with it, but that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and it's also true that across cultures, Christian or otherwise, uh, we often see we see people being drawn to the idea of giving oneself in love for another. Like that is not a concept that is unique to Christianity. Totally. So you could even say that um even getting outside of that young that early childhood period, we see in human relationships certain patterns uh, and certain values that seem to transcend boundaries and transcend cultural norms. And well, that is interesting, right? That's a sort of natural theology as well. So like if there is a, if, if the universe, by the way, natural theology is, is theologizing about God based just on the world, not on revelation through scripture. That's revealed theology. Go on. Mm -hmm. Yep. So right. sorry, We're, yeah, you're saying that like, uh, and C.S. Lewis actually talks about this. this is the beginning of mere Christianity. Yeah. His very his opening argument is look at the shared sense of morality yeah. uh, across human beings, and so that might be a place where even if we want to say, well, yeah, that evolved, and we all have the same kind of brains from evolution, sure, but like <laughs> mm-hmm. that just kicks the can back down the road. So okay, so God was okay with at at least us having a roughly shared morality. Now, what we might get into, what we're maybe talking about, the differences, Sarah, is is just that extra like 10% that is culturally bound or is family of origin oriented. Right. But assuming you had good attachment, yeah. uh, you're going to be maybe 90% overlap on mor- moral issues with, mm-hmm. with anyone else that had good attachment. And uh, that's, in, that's theologically interesting. Yeah, that's yeah, yeah. an important piece of information. Yeah, what's interesting here is that you have a lot more commonalities between, like you said, mammalian groups um, than you do amongst the between religious systems, right? So you could have you could have a religion like Buddhism or Hinduism that does not have the same kind of God concepts that Western Christians do, uh, or monotheism in general, right? You, like you would have. Um, you have a, you'd have a religion that in which there is not a personal like omniscient god that is worshipped in a relational kind of a re, or prayed to in a relational way. Their religi- religiosity is expressed differently and with different god concepts, but they still actually have the same relational values and moral norms that other cultures would. So that's just that's just interesting. I'm not I don't have an argument yeah. built around that. I'm just like that is interesting that even if their religions don't match their kind of relational framework within their people within their communities they still have those those values with each other isn't there a thing correct me if i'm wrong with buddhism though where most of so the the buddha himself seemed to really eschew this kind of personal deities Mm -hmm. and little little you know little shrines or whatever to, to use some pejorative language there but that like Almost all forms of Buddhism, other than basically Zen, ended up reincorporating personal yeah. deities of <laughs> some sort, right? Like, yeah, and in Confucianism, you know, there's no God, but you you have the ancestors that you specifically commune with and make sacrifices to. So it does seem like the God of the philosophers, as as these kinds of theisms are often called, more like Zen or you know these kind of like like deism and this kind of stuff. 
it, it seems to take a bunch of work to maintain that kind of religion. Yeah. And it's a lot more natural for humans to see God as sort of personal in some sense or gods yeah. or whatever. Yeah. So I don't know. That's just a complicating factor there. Yeah, I feel like this whole conversation comes back. I mean, there's a lot about this conversation that has been played out in the cognitive science of religion conversation for years now. Basically, this idea of like, if we naturally form these sorts of ideas about God, does that mean that they are not true? And the kind of the classic theological line is, no, of course, that doesn't mean they're not true. It just means that we have a God that created humans with a cognitive architecture to be able to relate to God <laughs> because like, of course that's how God would create it. So it's, it's sort and I of think like the this... more reformed and more deterministic you are. Probably that's the easier. It's easier to just take that line all the way as be like, mm-hmm. yeah, like this is exactly the world God wanted. This is the way God happened to have us be created through this mm-hmm. evolutionary process to have the census divinitatis. And so we're right. good. The, yeah, then the, if you're I mean, more like you and I and you don't have so, such a rigid view of God's act in history, it complicates things to go, okay, so God's agency is not the only thing involved in bringing us to this point. And so how do we rate the relative weight and importance of these things, right, as yeah. we go along? And actually for me, well, it, depending, it depends on what day I'm having because on some days I can see it going in actually the exact opposite direction where the, 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 the knowledge that there is a, um, a biological and cognitive reason where I would want a personal God to exist or I'd be naturally inclined to want to believe in that sort of God, that makes me think that I should doubt the validity of that path all the more strongly because, I mean, if we know anything about psychology, about the, about human psychology, is that we are really, really good at fooling ourselves. Like, we're right. really good at, at thinking that we are acting in one way for a particular set of reasons when that is not actually why we're acting in a particular way. With right. And in that we have, gosh, you know, it's like we have deep, deep desires And we will retrospectively create narratives that give us justification or support in pursuing those desires. And this is actually coming back to the deep magic question. Uh, This is why I think think it's such a brilliant, a brilliant question because it's raising this, it's raising this age old dilemma. Like does this like longing and aching like need I have to believe in a God of this certain type does that mean anything or is it something that should give me that because of modern psychology, I should actually take as a reason to be even more skeptical of the theology that I construct? Totally. Let me, let me attempt to answer that by invoking Jesus here. Okay. Uh, two, two, uh, two points here. The first is that, you know, who knew that we were really good at deceiving ourselves was Jesus of Nazareth. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that, you know, of, of course he didn't have, the peer-reviewed research on cognitive heuristics or whatever, but he knew. And it's all over his teachings and his parables. And like, he's a very psychologically sophisticated teacher at answering these questions with stories about the real issue underneath the question that the person was self-deceived about and thinking that they were asking the question. And this brings me to my, my second Jesus point, which is, And this might be too tidy, but I wonder if we can swap penal substitutionary atonement, which is what we have been talking about. And and, uh, that or crisis and or crisis victor seems to be what C.S. Lewis is doing with the the Narnia bit. What if we swap that with Girard's scapegoat theory and see how that holds up in this situation? Because I think that the scapegoat theory is a way of combining 
something of the magic of the atonement with a really sophisticated psychological understanding of at least what human groups do uh, to okay. some degree, individuals and to a greater degree groups. Um, can you give us uh, just like a two minute summary of the scapegoat theory and how it no, has you, been applied? You, you want do me that. to do it? I mean, okay. I, you'll know that better than me. I don't know it super well. So apologies if I get this wrong. But the idea is uh, Gerard's idea is that if you've seen 2001 A Space Odyssey, there is a scene in the first 30 minutes or so where the apes first find that a bone can be used as a weapon. And then one group of apes starts using bones as weapons against all the other apes that don't know how to use them as a weapon yet. And this is, this is actually a Girardian kind of a thing that Kubrick was really into. And it's, it's a particular theory about the origins of human culture and violence that's been largely debunked, that that is actually where culture came from. I think that that's not held as much as it was back in the 70s. But the idea, or 60s, but the idea is that, like, there's something really deep about using violence as a, uh, or violence and exile as a cleansing mechanism. That basically, when there's a problem in a human group, the quickest and dirtiest psychological solution is to identify the, the person or group that are to blame, whether or not they are. So this is witches. This is uh, the scapegoat. The word comes from actually in the Old Testament on Yom Kippur, you put all the sins on a goat and send it out into the wilderness. So Gerard thought that this was an early example of scapegoat theory being fleshed out in human societies. So then the idea is that Christ comes and understands this about people. And the only way to defeat, to end the cycle of scapegoating innocent people for group sins, we might say, is for Jesus to be like, I'll be the scapegoat. I'll take it. And then I will rise from the dead and prove to you that scapegoating is false. So this is a deep magic kind of a thing. It's it's pretty psychologically sophisticated, and yet it's still, if you want to interpret it as God acting, it's God still acting into that situation mm-hmm. with this kind of magical move. Not Magic is maybe the wrong word for it. It's, it's more like a chess move uh, mm-hmm. than it is magic. It's like, I'll see your scapegoating, and I will raise you resurrection. Well, that's mm-hmm. – I should – quote i should coin that resurrection raise you resurrection i mean so many layers there (laughs) chess and poker all in one so okay what do you think about that yeah i mean i think if you are inclined to be a theist that will be compelling i think if you're not already inclined to be a theist that won't be compelling this is one of those issues where um i think there are several ways out uh, there, are, I think there are several ways to affirm the deep magic component of Christianity if you are already committed to it as a framework. Yeah. So, yeah, sure. I think it's one of three or four great options. Wow. That's underwhelming. I really didn't. I didn't. No, uh... no, 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 no. I mean, it's like, Dan, we know that you and I part ways at a more elemental level when it comes mm-hmm. to um, where, where our beliefs lie at the moment. Check back later in like five years. We'll see how things stand. <laughs> but but at the moment, at the right. moment, you you've already gone down the, this like right path towards huh, the right path, the yeah. right path, right hand path towards theism. You're already in the camp, and so you're kind of yeah. working out the details of what deep magic might mean. I'm still not like really as far deep into that camp. Sure. Um. And I and I find myself questioning 
well, is it actually, um, you know, like, yes, of course I want to go down that. I, I want to go down that road, but I'm also like, well, am I just fooling myself by trying to create elaborate scenarios by which the deep magic makes sense? Uh, and atonement theory makes sense down that road. And um, because I want to believe that. And that kind of comes back to this question for me of like, you know, I sometimes step back and I'm like, I wonder if humans as a whole and like maybe me in particular, I'm just like not well suited. Like I, I am, I'm sort of like an evolutionary fluke perhaps. Like I, I'm not actually well suited to survival anymore. And I wonder about that as a species, like have we kind of like over evolved? Are we, are we like no longer, are our minds, our brains no longer well adapted to our environments? Would we do, would we probably be all a lot happier and better off if we just, we're just a little bit less evolved, like cognitively and emotionally and spiritually. Oh, um, like I, I sometimes yeah. wonder, like, I'm like, maybe we're just coming up with all this shit because like the world as it is, does not satisfy the longings that we have. And it's just like the tragedy of humanity is that we have these longings for which there is no f- fulfillment. Like that could, that could be, that could just be what's happened is what we've over evolved. <laughs> I have found um, myself thinking similar things. The, the mm-hmm. way that I push back on it though. So then what the people who want to return to like the Holy Roman empire are right. Like that didn't seem like a better time where just oh, the church sure was not. just in charge, you know, or whatever. Yeah, and I don't even think, I think it would, I think we'd be talking about like prior to, like modern humans. Like, I, I think we're talking about. <laughs> then that's, then that's truly dark. The, and then you, yeah. but then you have to say like, oh, what about art? And like, you know, I mean, I now know. you're getting, now you're getting rid of everything. And yeah, that yeah. seems, you know, that's rough. I, well, yeah, exactly. But this is like, this is the discussion, right? Like, do we do like, does us wanting to believe something have any weight at all? Like, and I think you could argue, you guess, but you could also argue no. I don't think that the data put, points us in any, in any particular direction that has to sure. you know, come from somewhere else. Well, that's interesting. And we've just proven to ourselves that we can take any topic and blast it out into psychedelic space. So okay. last time we started with babies and ended with the multiverse. This time we started with Narnia and ended with <laughs> maybe humans should have never evolved. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> But uh, I'm going to take these time limits seriously. So we are now going to take a break and we're going to come back and talk about fear of death, which is not so far off from where we just landed on this one. So, all right, be back in a minute. This podcast has a Patreon campaign by which you can support it financially. You can go to patreon.com slash Dan Koch. There's also a link in the show notes. And patrons get at least two exclusive episodes per month, as well as access to the patron-only You Have Permission Facebook group, which is fantastic. Most recent exclusive episode is with fellow patron Jared Pogue, who actually is a therapist that has started a online therapy practice focused particularly on people going through faith deconstruction and reconstruction. So we hear his own Deconstruction, reconstruction story, as well as uh, the I have a bunch of questions, basically, about his practice. Of course, I'm very interested in that as someone who's training to be a psychologist myself, but also in this kind of world, the deconstruction world. So that was very cool. And you can listen to that if you're a patron. And if not, you might become one. You might think about becoming one. Patreon.com slash Dan Coke. All right. Back to my conversation with Sarah. So 
Let's start off this fear of death thing uh, with a little personal acknowledgement here or confession. Most of the times that I really glimpse this concept of not existing anymore, the possibility that when I die, that's it, that it, the lights are off. Most of the times that I glimpse that, it is the thing I am more afraid of than anything else. It fills me with the most terror. Now, I'm sure as Soren gets older and I can imagine fresh things that might happen to him someday, perhaps that will <laughs> eclipse my own terror of not existing. But there's something so elemental about not existing. And some people, I, I know that there are many people who uh, are able to go, well, I'm not going to know that I don't exist. It's, and that, that solves it for them, that they're, they don't longer, no longer feel anything weird about it. They go, well, I won't care then. Why should I worry about it now? That doesn't work for me most days. I, not, I don't walk around thinking about the void every day, but most days where I do encounter it, that doesn't really work for me. I, I am terrified of it. And uh, I really don't want to stop existing. I, I can't imagine not wanting to exist in some sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I know that the Christian faith for 99% of Christians over time includes the idea that I will continue to exist. And I very much hope that that's true. It is my deepest and most sincere hope. But maybe one of the things that draws us to each other mentally is that I have a real strong inability to feel confident about things that I can't conceive of. And I think I see that in you as well. Oh, yeah. Um, And maybe that's actually related a little bit to what we were talking about earlier. To what extent do we destroy things by needing to be able to conceive of them is an interesting open question. But that's where I start with this topic of of fear of death. Uh, Where do you start with it? (laughs) Yeah, I start from the 4 a.m. existential crises that I routinely have. For me, it's actually, it's it's oftentimes been in the middle of the night uh, Mm. where I wake up and I can't fall asleep for whatever reason. I, or like I lay awake in bed at night before I go to sleep and I'm like painfully aware that one day I will die. One day I will die. And I, from the time I was like a little child, I was, I I think more acutely aware of mortality and death than most people watching my mom die. I did not help this at all. (laughs) And, you know, I, I think that there's a strong argument to be made that if I had not grown up in Christianity, if I'd grown up in a tradition where death and, uh, personhood and existence um, were conceived differently, I wouldn't have this fear. I think it's possible. You know, if, if my, if, if I had grown up in a, an Eastern culture where just there was a different narrative around death and that had been, you know, communicated to me from a very young age, perhaps my brain would have done some, something different from this, with, yeah. the, with this, but it is just the case that uh, because of the way I grew up, same way you did, Dan, like where like you are, the, the great promise of Christianity is that you're going to spend eternity with God and all of your loved ones. Like, yeah. come on, if that's not a potent drug, I don't know what is like, that's like, yeah. you're selling the good stuff there. Um, you're selling and, immortality. You're selling people immortality. Um, so to what extent does our fear of, it yeah. how how much of that is a result of uh the the formative sort of yeah. moral and and temporal structure given to us as yes. kids involved exactly. us never dying yes exactly yeah. and i think about this a lot now that i have a little baby now that i have rowan i i think long and hard about this actually like do, like, do mm. i want her to grow up in a christian worldview where she's taught that the good stuff comes after she dies and that Mm. she um will if she believes the right stuff then she will spend eternity with 
with with God, or even if she doesn't believe the right stuff, you know, even if you take yeah, a universalist line here, you wouldn't like do that. Yeah, right. Yeah, but I mean, even if you take a universalist line, I mean, like Martin's not a fundamentalist by any stretch of the imagination, but you know, still is committed to this idea of spending eternity with God in some way. Um, yeah. And I'm not sure that I want her to grow up believing that because if, if she starts deconstructing that, then she's going to be left in a world of existential hurt. And the atheists that I know who de- who did not grow up with a Christian narrative have resolved this that usually oftentimes in adolescence in a very different way. Like they just, they just didn't grow up with the same expectations of life. And they started having different thoughts and ex- like emotions around death that they had to just develop differently, I think. Um, and they're, oftentimes their families were also not Christian. And so they were just right. like a different like communal narrative around death for them. There's a sense in which I could tell, uh, especially when I was more entrenched in more conservative communities, that the Christians around me really wanted and expected for atheists to be motivated by the same fears that they were motivated by when yes. it came to hell. Yes. And I wonder how much of that of those now some of those people were adult converts so we would be harder to you know i i don't know that would be an interesting study if somebody wanted to do that that'd be mm-hmm. a great study to figure out how afraid i how would you even get people to know well enough to answer i don't know that might be an impossible oh, this study. is jonathan this is jonathan jongo he this is his research is um religious belief in fear of death like this is like his whole thing so okay well i yeah. <laughs> i've already got his his website yeah. bookmarked to to look over and talk with him. So perhaps we'll get there. But yeah, that was that's interesting that from a theological perspective, is God not stoked that people raise their children to not worry about what yeah. happens when they die? What is the role of some level of fear of either death or hell or reprisal or yeah. whatever in a in a morally good life, even one that you enjoy more by having it be yeah. more morally good, you right. know? So I want to distinguish, and we don't have to spend much time on this, between pathological fear of death and non-pathological fear of death. How would you even distinguish that? Uh, you you can't – I mean you can't do it once and for all. But the, the general – what a psychologist would say is if it is clinically significantly affecting your daily life. That doesn't mean it's not true though or based no, on No, I know. I'm, I'm just saying. I'm, I'm just for, – for what I'm about to say, I am – I'm distinguishing between them. Okay? okay. It might be true that a, that a rational – well-adjusted person should be so afraid of death that it's pathological. I don't, I'm not convinced of that, but we could, maybe we can have that conversation if you want to. But if we can rule out things like religious scrupulosity, where people are so afraid of hell or death that they pray the same prayer 50 times every night before they go to bed, that's, that's pathology. That's, God does not want that of anybody. But let's just say a, a more kind of middle of the bell curve uh, fear of death and fear of the end. I think it's an open question whether God appreciates that people have that yeah. because we are going to die. And, you know, an acknowledgement of the end might be different than a fear, but I don't know how different they are. And is if the fear is baked in, then perhaps that's a, a very good and healthy response. And that mm-hmm. motivates a certain kind of a life. So I don't know. I, I wanted to, to go there and see what you think. Yeah. Gosh. So, I don't think that you have to sign up to a like a belief in a literal hell in order yeah. to think that God could create a world in which humans were aware of and in sort of like awe of their own mortality, their own right. death, because it would prompt a different way of living. So this is the Christian existentialist, right? So the Christian existentialist is going to say, I'm going to die one day. 
And, you know, depending on how I conceive of the, you know, the theistic God, there might not actually be a conscious existence for me after death. That's possible. Even right. Christ, even there are many Christians even who think that. that I, mean, I like think that. Conscious, I, yeah, I exactly. really there, hope for it, yeah. but I, it's, a, it's a very yeah. real possibility that there is yeah. not one. Right. Right. And, but that belief, that knowledge could still be allowable and even desirable by God because it would kind of motivate uh, a, a particular sort of life. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, that seems like, I I mean, I would want to argue for that. I think like, I don't, I don't find that it, I don't find that my quality of life on this earth has suffered at all from recognizing, like, I don't like having this fear. I opened up, I I opened up this segment by talking about this fear, but I don't think Mm -hmm. it's made my life worse. Uh, I, do. I don't, you know what I mean? You do? I do okay. though. For me, it has. Yeah. So and has. Okay. so I think that, I mean, I would actually very happily say for sure my fear of death has not even like a fear of death. It's more like a fear of mortality. Like it's very, it's very odd. So I have a, I have a really, really, really high like risk tolerance. Yeah. I do things that most people would be really freaked out by. I'm, I, I think of myself as quite adventurous. I am not, a, I'm not afraid of most physical things. You are. You were the guest on the episode talking about psychedelic drugs. Absolutely, and I'm also. Um, I, I have. A, I'm like very, very high on the openness to experience kind of uh, metric. Yeah, me too. And yep. like very high. And uh, so, so I'm not. I'm not driven by a fear of death, right? Like I don't do things because of I'm dying. Of dying. Of dying. Of dying. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. yeah. But I am terrified of not existing. And I yes, think there's this too. part of me, but it's, it's deeper than that for me. It's not just like, oh my gosh, one day I'm going to go to sleep and I'm not going to wake up again. It's that like, if I die and there's nothing, then the whole meaning of everything is gone. Like the, like the, the yeah. sacredness of life is just, it just disappears. Like it's not okay that humans die if there's nothing else after that. Like there's something about our longing for life and our, our urge to survive and just this propensity to create and construct humans are constantly creating and constructing and and bringing more life into the world. We have this intrinsic sense that that is what is good and what is right. And for then all, for all of that to just like disappear and to, 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 to be just like wiped away and for you to not continue to exist and construct and relate and to love for that to just to be annihilated. There's something about that that feels to me like, so wrong. And when I talk about us like having longings co- that correspond to deep magic and that perhaps it is possible that we've over-evolved, this is exactly the sort of thing that I'm talking about. Yeah, like yeah. the awareness of mortality is part of what makes humans human. And if there is no like afterlife, then that's a real shit part of the natural world that we would be aware of our own mortality and not want to die. Yeah. So interesting. Okay. A lot to unpack here. Oh, wait, wait. Sorry. Sorry. Go on. The reason I the reason I got off on that was because I was going to say that, like, I actually do experience that awareness of death. I will actually say like a pathological way in the, in the, in the sense that it detracts from my experience of life. Um, yes, that's, I, I, that's one of the ways I was going to go with it. Yeah. Yeah. I really want to be like a Christian existentialist. I really, or even as like, I'm mean, gosh, I'd settle for atheist existentialist at this point. Um, like I really want to be a good existentialist where I look death straight in the face. I, I face off with mortality. I acknowledge it and I accept it. And then I say, okay, then I'm going to make my life freaking count. And I'm going to pursue those things that will imbue my life with with as much meaning and purpose and passion as possible. That is not the effect that it has on me. The existentialist, that's what happens. For me, it just makes me almost like nauseous. 
well, it's, there's, you know, it's, it's not a coincidence that Sartre's book was called nausea, right? So it's, it makes me kind of like existentially almost physically nauseous. And then when yeah. I wake up at four in the morning and I realize all over again that my life is going to end sooner than I want and that I will not have become the person that I want. I will not have experienced all that I want. I will not have created or produced or loved in all the ways that I want. It makes me cry. It makes me, it makes me weep with like, a sort of existential despair and a, a knowledge that things are not supposed to be that way. And then I wonder, well, why, why would humans have that like sure knowledge that things are not supposed to be that way? And then that sends me off on like a spiral about like how I'm an evolutionary fluke. And I'm like the odd one now that probably would have died off in an earlier society. And I'm just being kept alive by our social structures. <laughs> oh, I felt that many times. Um <laughs> Very, very grateful to have been born in the 1980s. Mm-hmm. So, okay, a lot of angles to go here. I think that for me, an emphasis on psychology over the last few years makes this a lot clearer than it would have been earlier. So on the one thing I'll say is I think you're right. You do experience this in what I would call a pathological way, in a way that I don't. I know what it's like to have a pathological fear for something, but for me, that has been the end times. And uh, ironically, I think that's the right word for it, of all the people I interviewed about that, most of them were uh, afraid of hell, ultimately. I was never afraid of hell. I Mm -hmm. uh, never thought I was going there. So therefore, I don't have have panic attacks about not existing. It sounds like what you have is closer to panic attacks. And that's pathological, meaning... No, I don't. It's not, pa- it's not panic it's attacks. Not I panic know what attacks. those are. Okay. No, it's not. I've never been prone to panic. It's more of a... It is more of a despairing thing. It's kind yeah. of like... It's like the difference between like an acute pain that's like screaming, like a, right. a panic attack, and like this dull ache in the center okay. of your being. Yeah. yeah. Maybe you would put it more along the depression axis than the anxiety axis. I mean, I'm not sure. Yeah. But for, it, it interferes yeah. with your daily life. Uh, it interferes with your enjoyment of the world. Yeah, for sure. And I think if I'm honest, it probably, yeah, it keeps me from being, from pursuing things I would otherwise pursue. Yeah. That's a nice sort of rule of thumb for if something is pathological or not, Mm -hmm. or clinically significant is another way of saying it. I might not be using exactly all the right terminology here. I'm still a student, (laughs) but I think that that's helpful because similar to what we were talking about earlier, people have different things that are clinically significant for them, different fears, different whatever, personality traits, people have different levels of narcissism, some of which are clinically significant, like Trump, some of which are not, like me. I have a non-clinically significant amount of narcissism, but I've got some, you know, but it's not enough to sort of derail my life or make me destructive or, you know, whatever, that kind of Mm -hmm. a thing. Don't speak too soon, I guess, right? Knock on wood. (laughs) So that's the first thing. And I I just think that that's important because that's going to really color our experience of these things, right? is how much of a negative impact they're having on our day-to-day life. Right. Another angle is you said you have a deep sense that it's not okay if people die and there's nothing after that, that that's like, that's a really bad world. And I think my intuition on this is slightly different. I wonder if there's a relationship between the pathology or not of how we experience this. But Uh when I think about the, the possibility that, yeah, we do die and then that is it and I just cease to exist. I don't – what I think is something less bad than what you think. What I think is, oh, okay, there is not the God that I think there is uh, because mm-hmm. the God that I think there is is just. And as far as I can tell, 
that would not be a just universe. Not for everybody. Mm-hmm. It would be plenty just for me. And it might even be just for most creatures. But I would say there's so much still to be grateful and have been grateful for. I would mm-hmm. absolutely do it again is another way mm-hmm. of saying it. There's, I mean, there's almost nothing that mm-hmm. could happen to me at this point in my life that would make the whole thing not have on balance, not have been worth it. The only thing I can think of is like someone figures out how to put my brain into a digital consciousness and torture me (laughs) for, for more than for some number of years. Other than that, I can't think of anything that would make it not have been worth it. And so the God, I think I know isn't real. Something else is real, but it's not that the whole thing is bad. So I think that's an interesting difference. Right. So in my um, worst case scenario in which there just is no God and what we have in this life is just all there is, even if that is the case, it's not that I would say that it hasn't been worth it. It's that I would die with so many regrets. Right. Mm. I would die like thinking, oh, my gosh, I had, you know, like there will never be enough time. You know, I had 80 years and like, I didn't do all these things. I did all these things badly. I didn't experience this, this, and this. I was so anxious or I was so despairing or depressed, or I didn't do this thing or I should have done. And I, I think that my fear is that I would die without having created a life that I could actually be happy and proud of. And I can't ever imagine myself getting to the point where I'm like, yeah, you know, I've lived a long life and I'm ready to die. I have never understood that. I've heard it from a lot of elderly people. Maybe yeah. that will magically happen for me. I'm really I hoping person, so. Yeah. I have not <laughs> ever experienced anything remotely to that where I'm like, oh Same. yeah, one yeah. time I'm going to like get to this point where I'm gonna be like, yeah, I had a nice good long life and I'm ready to die now. That's only just only not- when I'm in, I, I occasionally get these acute depressive spells that last mm-hmm. less than 24 hours. And in those instances, I can sometimes imagine being so tired of living. Mm -hmm. I don't I don't have any suicidal ideation or anything like that. But those are the only times that I can really kind of even train my mind on it. But most of the time, I absolutely cannot imagine saying, yeah, I'm done being conscious, being able to read and watch movies. And like, what when am I going to get to that point? I can't even imagine it. But people do. Yeah, exactly. I just don't. And, 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 and to be honest, I just don't understand how people who are like straight up atheists, I don't understand the cognitive experience that they have of just being happy with the life that they have and knowing that one day yeah. they will die and that will be it. I just don't have, I do, I do not have access to that way of feeling about the world. And this is where I come back and sometimes get pissed at evangelicalism for giving me a different narrative um, of a different like metaphysical construct, because the, I, I see that there are people out there who are just as devoid or more devoid of faith than I am, don't even have a shred of hope for a God. And actually they're kind of okay with it. They're what I call the happy atheists where they somehow find meaning and purpose within the natural. They might experience transcendence within the natural and they have extremely rich relationships with each other, with other people. And this brings meaning to their lives. I would love to have access to that reality. I just don't. And I'm not sure how you, how one gets there. So Mm. I guess I kind of think that like, I might just be screwed because I was born and I I developed because of the nurturing of my community. I developed a uh, cognitive construct in which there, the, the, the the meaning in life was defined by the Christian God. Um, If you mean screwed in the sense of you have certain moral intuitions about what would make a good life and universe, you probably are screwed. But that doesn't mean, you know, look, you're 35, 34. 
35, yeah. 35. I'm 37. It's not like the book is written on how we will arrange our lives according to those intuitions. We have yeah. a long time still to figure out how we should live with those intuitions. So mm-hmm. screwed in one sense, sure, maybe you won't be able to change those deep intuitions, but not screwed in the larger sense of ending up with a meaningful life given those intuitions. Right. We still have a lot of time there. Yeah. I mean, so so sometimes I think that like the best case scenario for me might be that I die on a high note. So you know how <laughs> you know you know the best case scenario for me might be that I die on a high note. What a fucking sentence. Yes, okay, go on. Like, you know how just, you know wow. how like that woke me you know up. how you know how psych research tells us that the most recent episode in a series of episodes is the one that kind of frames the whole thing for yeah, us. Re- yeah, recency bias and yes. we interpret our past through our current emotional state, etc. Yeah. yeah. Right. So, I mean, I guess there's a part of me that hopes that, you know, somewhere later in life, I'll come to a point where I can reframe all that has come before and kind of construct a narrative for myself, uh, kind of go through like the stages of grief really rapidly and come Mm -hmm. to a kind of a sense of my life that has a different narrative quality to it than it does right now. I always this is I always find myself thinking that, like, so what if people die with peace, like whatever it's like? That was just the last few days. Yep. Like I'm, I want to know how the whole life went. Yeah. Like I, I do think that yeah. we put the more that I've started focusing on experience as mm-hmm. a primary lens through which I just look at and am interested in things, which mm-hmm. is correlated with the turn to psychology. The less I valued the sort of deathbed experience or the like, well, they died this way or whatever. That's not. I don't mean. Like with COVID, people dying without the support of their family around them. That, yeah. I'm not talking about that. That's just that's so sad and so tragic. Mm-hmm. I, I don't mean in terms of I don't mean in terms of the comfort and care of the person mm-hmm. dying. I mean in terms of like how much value should I derive from the words people say at the very end of their lives? Yeah. I don't know how much. Like I, I feel like I'm that's lessened a bit. But mm-hmm. that's more of an aside. Just it's funny that you maybe think of it. I do. I have two thoughts though about what we've been talking about. One of them is that I just want to say, and I don't, I don't know how this works, but I do get the sense from the contemplatives that I have read and occasionally met in person and, mm-hmm. um, or like father Paul, the Jesuit that I spent uh, so much time with up here in Seattle, that there are people for whom a life of prayer really does actually change this stuff for them. Yeah. And I would, I'm pretty confident in saying Neither you or I have put in the no, I haven't <laughs> the requisite time yeah. to that life, mm-hmm. and so I that's worth noting that uh, if I could become the type of person of prayer that I plan <laughs> that I try to be, and uh, yeah. I, I'm taking a sort of a giving myself a break while Soren is so little uh, yeah. until kids are school age or whatever. But if I yeah. can, the, to the extent that I can do that, I actually I do think that maybe a lot of this will be solved. Yeah. Um, in my own yeah. head. Yeah. And, so, and yeah. So meditation as well and psychedelics, like there's really good research about that sort of like end of life right. mortality fears, really good research around that. And so it's like, yeah, I am aware that I have not actually f- like fully explored the existing methodologies that are yeah. like well-researched. <laughs> yeah. And that are available to, that are available yeah. to me if I just get up 20 minutes earlier, like it's not I even, know. They're not that hard to do. (laughs) 
It's really so, pathetic, actually. It is. It is. Uh, but then I was brought back to your thing from last segment about are we overly evolved or whatever. And I think that there is probably something to the more evolved we got to where we where we are now or even if we further evolve – the greater our cognitive capacities, the greater our ability to forecast into the future, and this is a lot of evolutionary psychologists will kind of put that as the that's the marker where it becomes more human is like mm-hmm. really projecting into the future, being able to plan out multiple steps, etc. The more ability we have for that, the more naturally ambitious we are going to become about what we might do with that future, either as a society or as an individual or for my family or whatever, Mm -hmm. for my country. Mm -hmm. And isn't it just part of that, the flip side of that coin, the more ambitions you have, it's true, the the more things you'll be able to accomplish, but also multiplied infinitely, the more things you won't be able to accomplish simply because you're aware of them. Yes. And this makes me think about someone with like, I don't know, a low IQ who lives and dies in the same town or even just a person living, you know, living before the Industrial mm-hmm. Revolution who has mm-hmm. very, very little chance of ever going mm-hmm. anywhere. How much do they lose by not having a wider horizon and how much do they gain uh, yeah. or do they not not lose? <laughs> right. Yeah. Like so yeah. by not being able to accomplish the things on their wider horizon. Yes, exactly. And so a slightly more like arrogant version of the are we over evolved point that I was making is um, a very related one, which is like, sometimes I wish I was more stupid. Like, I wish that I just had like, I just wish I had less intelligence. Uh, do, do, wait, do I wish I had less intelligence? Probably not. No, but you like, don't. But I do like kind of look with longing at the people that I know who they would say themselves are just, you know, they're not geniuses. But they're in a very simple and they're very happy. They're very, they're happy. They're simple. They know they're simple and they have a very like clearly defined. um, To be clear, you're not simple is a term that's gone out of fashion to describe people who are not that smart. You just mean they they live a simple life. No. Yeah, exactly. I mean, someone who has. (laughs) I know that's what you mean. Oh, God. No, 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 no. I know that's what you meant. I'm just okay, making I'm, sure I'm other people know that's what you meant. Yes. Yeah. I'm combining yes. one category of a person who has like a, 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 a below average intelligence and another category of someone who has simple tastes and preferences. Yes. And yes. yes. And lower ambitions and they lower are ambition, fine with right. their life. Yes. Right. Yeah. 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 So and I think yeah. I think that a lot of people <laughs> are kind of existing in a sweet spot. Um, yeah. Probably you look at the bell curve of, of like self-awareness, emotional intelligence and like like other sorts of intelligences. There's like a bell curve for these baby. And I think a lot of people who are kind of in like the sort of like average ish kind of part of this bell curve are probably a lot more happy, um, a lot happier, actually, because it's like they're the, 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 the branching possibilities for them are more constrained and the horizons are a little bit less like telescopic and I actually envy I envy people like this. Um, my dad's a perfect example, actually. I'm like, my dad is actually really, he's very intelligent. He's not like below average intelligence, but he is a very simple person in sort of his like lifestyle and, and the way that he experiences happiness in the world. And I, I get really envious of him, actually, for the way that he's able to derive satisfaction and meaning and purpose from like very simple like rhythms of his life. Um, yeah. And I think, you know, I was talking to somebody about this the other day. I was thinking about this conversation and I was trying to describe 
describe to them like what it is exactly that I want. And if I had to say in a sentence, what do I want? I want the sort of, I want the peace and I hate that word, but like, you know what I mean by that? Like the peace with myself in reality. I love that that word. I don't know what you're talking about. Is okay. Well, I want the piece <laughs> that is not that is strong enough or that is solid enough that it is not destroyed by my 4 a.m. waking periods, right? I want a piece that is not only something that I cling to during my waking hours when I have other distractions available. Like, I want a piece that goes deep enough that it can withstand the nighttime, like, existential crises. That's like kind of like, and I think that you can get that. I do think that you can get that without God. I, th- I do think it's possible, but I think that those who do have a sense of God and who can kind of cling to that, it, it's just, it just comes so much easier. But I, don't know. I wonder how much weight the simple life itself carries though, that it's, yeah. that it is less about intelligence. Mm-hmm. Um, I think about, I have interacted with some monks here and there. Uh, some of whom I've read their work and I know how intelligent they are, yeah. but like they're happy and they have a very simple life. That's an extreme example. Do you think example. that they've trained their minds? Like, I feel like maybe my problem is that I let my mind go wherever it wants to go. Yeah. Like, oh, they definitely trained goes, their minds. Yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of it is probably that they have channeled, they've, 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 but not blunted it, out. but not yeah. blunted their mind. That's, no, that's like kind of what I'm getting tree. at. Well, right, it's, like, it's like pruning a tree. Yes. Like they just like cut off all the branches that are not helpful for them. And they yeah. are very like focused on, it's like a bonsai tree or something where it's like, they are very clear about the shape of this, where they're going um, and what they are going to allow in. Whereas I'm monks, just like a fucking yeah. free for all. Monks yeah. and nuns generally across religious traditions seem happier. Yeah, for you sure. Know? And oh, for so, sure. Yeah. Uh, and many of them are very, very intelligent. It's not like dumb people become monks and nuns. That's yeah, not how it goes. Yeah, I should probably retract my statement about intelligence. This is no, not about no, because I No, because I, I mean, you can retract it, but I'm with you. I do think there's something, there is a natural mathematical relationship between the more complex of states you can imagine, the greater mm-hmm. are your ambitions. I think that's yeah. probably true generally across the population and that there's a flip side of that which is you might not be able to achieve those ambitions then you have disappointment about that it's like greater capacity means greater joys and greater sadness Mm -hmm. that kind of a thing like uh, a dog can be pretty happy and it can be pretty annoyed when you're not giving him the food or whatever but he can't be he can't experience what i can experience with my child as a human Uh, and he can't experience what i would experience if my child was killed yeah. You know, as a human, right? So it's right. just the the funnel. Go, it's a big funnel, and it's mm-hmm. more joy and more sadness, and they uh, extend proportionately to each other, yep. right? Yep. Um, okay. What a fantastic conversation! Yeah, you have some. Actually, you have some regrets. <laughs> I know. <laughs> No, I don't have regrets. No, it's just a really, I mean, it's, like, I feel like this conversation has been a really vulnerable, like, yeah. look into our souls. You know, yeah. I think it's really interesting that we're both able to acknowledge, like, yeah, not super, not super thrilled about this whole non-existence thing. Totally. Um, and, and if you, you know, do I wish I could be a person who did not experience this fear? I probably don't, actually. I think that I would always choose the acute pain of um, awareness or 
kind of yeah, like awareness of the possibility rather than just like blunting it, like blunting the pain. I, I choose to experience it. But I, I guess, I mean, as I, as, we, as we've been talking, I, I'm kind of like struck again by all the avenues that I haven't pursued. You know, like I, I'll like I'll talk about spiritual technologies all the time, but there are so many that I haven't actually built yeah, into my life in a systematic totally. way. So, hundred percent. Oh, I remember what I was going to say. We don't yeah, spend good. a lot of time on it, but so I was a philosophy major in in undergrad. And uh, I dropped out after three years to to play in Sherwood and tour. And I, and I was also dealing with some depression in college. And I remember as an undergrad in philosophy, just getting this really strong sense that like a lot of philosophers envied non-philosophers, like regular yeah. folks who seem to be much happier than they yeah. are. And I, yeah. I, I would I would we should ask Myron and Jonathan yeah. this if this is true still of yeah. of philosophers in the field but then i went on tour and i mostly stopped thinking about philosophy i i got interested in some theological questions which frankly are easier to get your mind around than most philosophical yeah. questions and i just toured and i enjoyed my bandmates i enjoyed being in on the road it was a very fun way to spend my 20s and i was happier mm-hmm. i got happier and my depression lifted uh, I don't yeah. think that I don't know exactly all the the causal chains there, mm-hmm. but that being said, I'm now back into a non-touring life, uh, pursuing a grad do grad degree, you know, working a job. It's a good job, but I don't think I'm less happy than I was on tour. I'm more happy right. now. So yeah. it's like that was something, but it wasn't the end of the story. Is maybe yeah. the way of of saying it that like yeah. I think I maybe did need to take a step back from it. But mm-hmm. then I now I, I'm glad to be reengaging it. And yeah. man, by the time I'm 65, I mean, who knows? Like, yeah. if I can become the kind of prayerful person and mm-hmm. if I can live the kind of more simple life that I do feel would be better, mm-hmm. if Jeffrey and I can figure out how to do that with children yeah. in a highly industrialized, wealthy Western country, I kind of doubt that I would ever want to go back. Yeah. But maybe that's overly optimistic. I don't know. Yeah, I feel the same way. I, I think part of the part of the thing that has made me the most likely to particularly likely to have these existential kind of mortality fears is probably this also a similar it's probably also um, involved in the thing that could help me out of that, which is sort of my innate like sensitivity to experience. Hmm. So my whole life since I was like a little kid, I was one of those like very sensitive children right where like where i i just experience everything very deeply um like everything like i it's, it's like going out in the world i was almost naked right i didn't have armor i was not born i was not like cognitively prepared for the reality of the world yeah and then just, your mom I, I, dies when you're a kid yeah but i mean way 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 before that I'm i saying, was always... and then that happens to you is yeah, what, yeah, yeah exactly like... Just talk about exacerbating it, right? Yep, yep. So I was always a very sensitive person to, not in the sense of like, oh my gosh, I'm going to cry, in the sense of like, sensitive to all things, sensitive to the positive, to the negative, to to, to, to pain in others, to fears in myself. And so there's a real sense though, in which that part of me um, might well serve me well um, Mm. in the future, where a simpler focus or a more defined kind of practice might still provide me with enough stimuli because I am so sensitive to everything. Oh, okay. 100%. I have been thinking about this recently that I I think I share this with you and I I've, I've said it before somewhere that like, I used to think that I would be a good therapist because I wasn't that affected by people's pain and stories. And then my therapist was like, 
No, I, I think it's the opposite. I think you're really affected by it and you feel it deeply. And you also have all kinds of ways of like, I filled in the gaps here. I have all kinds of ways of ignoring that and yes. suppressing it. But I've been thinking, especially with Soren, and I, I, I'd love to hear if you find this true with Rowan, that like, I keep like almost daily, almost daily at this point, I will find something he's doing so wonderful and fascinating. Yes. And I will remember a younger version of myself going like, yes. adults are Adults like such boring shit, you know, like how could they possibly think this is interesting? And I'm yeah. watching it going, no, 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 you punk ass kid. You have no idea what you're not seeing about this, yeah. this yes. little brain figuring out uh -huh. how to, you know, and yeah. I, I notice it outside in nature too. And sometimes with mm -hmm. him of mm -hmm. like, that's a, that little bird is like a, uh, millions yes. of years evolved yes. flesh yes. machine. Mm -hmm. And it's colorful and beautiful. Like, like what the hell? I think yeah. about like, if I had, it's like Walden, the Thoreau mm -hmm. book, you know, like the, 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 the story that everybody knows is that like, you can go to Walden pond and it is just like a regular yep. pond. And he wrote mm -hmm. the like most beautiful piece of nature writing ever. Mm -hmm. So I do, I think that's right. And so I think it really, for us, it does come down to which of these spiritual technologies will we avail ourselves of and will yeah. we choose to use them to form ourselves? And they're all yeah. free. Basically yes. they just require some discipline and, yeah. but exactly to give ourselves a little grace, Minds like yours and mine in modern Western society, we have every incentive not to simplify, not to just pray and like calm yeah. down and slow down and yeah. and trim that tree, prune the tree. We yeah. get rewarded by being constantly active and constantly yeah. thinking about things and checking yeah. every app and writing back quickly because <laughs> we can, because our brain works fast. Uh -huh. And so then we... And then we achieve, like I, I achieved as a composer, partly by being faster than other composers, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. But so then that's a disincentive. So yeah. we have some grace, but we recognize that that's the way forward is actually to, to, to prune it and to, and to constrain yeah. it a little bit, I think. That is a really helpful note on which to end. Very hopeful. Yeah. That's way better than, well, I guess we'll just end here. Die. <laughs> Die. <Yeah. laughs> In fear. Thank yeah. you for giving me the face that said, I'm not ready. This is, this is not a good time to end, Dan. I know. I'm like, you, I feel like there's going to be something else. <laughs> I just was out of ideas and thinking that you had to go. So that's that was much better. But no, I really okay. I really do believe that. I think that, yeah, it's, no, it's the flip side of the coin. I do, too. I do, too. I'm actually feeling like... There's a pass forward now. Like I love how we're like working up, working on our spiritual crises it's on therapy. air. This is great. <laughs> this is it's great. uh, it's yeah, it's on air therapy. No, love but it. really, but I I wonder. This will be something to keep in mind and and yep. uh, to follow up on later. Yeah. With each other is what will the relationship be between mm -hmm. this hyper concrete kind of pruning and attention that we're now talking about? Yep. You know Rowan's hand movements. Yes. The bird. And the kind of larger scale stuff we were talking about mm -hmm. earlier of like th these really big meta questions of, yep. is this a good world? It, mm -hmm. Was this a good thing to have existed if even if uh, coming to terms with the possibility of non-existence? Mm -hmm. I wonder what focusing on the sparrow outside the window and the baby's hand will do for these bigger intuitions. Yes. I'm very curious to see how that goes. All right, let's do it. <laughs> okay, cool. Thanks, Sarah. Cool. 
We'll talk again soon. Okay. All right. Thanks, Dan. Man, I love talking to Sarah. Thanks to Josh Gilbert for editing this episode. He is available for more podcast editing work. His email is also in the show notes. You can join the Patreon at patreon.com slash Dan Coke. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter. If you'd like, the links for that are in the notes, as well as, as always, the SewYourDeconstructing.com website, which is really a good thing to share with friends who are going through this journey and don't know uh, left from right, don't know up from down. Um, Hopefully there can be some stabilizing resources in that list. Okay. Thank you guys for listening. And again, this one's for Blake. See you guys next week.